Today's reading is from Matthew 2, 1, 18. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and mirth. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Amen. Amen. There's a really, really smart guy who wrote a book I'm sure you all read before you went to bed last night called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. The author Thomas Kuhn said when any person, when you, come to new information or new data, you and I, we always process it through a personal grid, a paradigm. In other words, and here's his point, no one comes unbiased to new information. And when we look at new information, our consistent approach is to always look at that new information to support our current grid or paradigm, or we throw it away. And the classic example of this, he said, is how the scientific community approached the solar system, right? It was thought for centuries that the earth was the center of the solar system and that everything revolved around earth. But over time, as new information, new data presented itself, scientists were forced to look at this data in a new way, and then they suggested, well, maybe we've been interpreting it incorrectly all along. And this is the way that Kuhn said that understanding uh, progresses. He said, we interpret through grids and paradigms until something new comes along and shatters our old grid, and then we get an entirely new and different way of seeing the same data. Here in Matthew chapter 2, we find from the beginning of Jesus' life a pattern, which is he is the new data. 
He's the new grid. He's the new way of seeing life. And he's constantly breaking into and shattering the grids of people he encountered to bring them into a way, a right way of viewing God, spirituality. That's what he's doing here in Matthew 2, as we're going to see. He's breaking into the grids. He's interrupting the lives of the people he meets. So we're going to take a look at three different kinds of people, kind of lives, that Jesus wants to and does break into right here from the passage. We're going to see he breaks into the lives of the wise, of the king, and of the Christian. Let's begin number one, look at the wise here and pick up the story from the the very beginning of chapter two where it reads this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, before we get into what's going on here in the passage, let me just be a sort of late summertime Grinch. And ruin a bit of the Christmas story for you. And first of all, for all my Filipino friends in the room, I'm especially sorry because I know the Christmas season actually began for you this past week, September. Uh, it's true, actually, the, because the phrase, I found this out, Christmas in the Philippines has its own Wikipedia page. If you'll see there in the bold, they actually have the distinction of celebrating the world's longest Christmas season. No wonder everything's more fun in the Philippines. That's their national tagline. All right. But second of all, uh, I'll put it like this, most of what you think you know about these guys, the Magi, is probably wrong because no matter what the old Christmas carol says, they weren't kings. They weren't kings. Uh, They were Magi. They were educated pagan astrologers, and there weren't three of them because nowhere does it say three. Yeah, there were three kinds of gifts, but that's got nothing to do with how many people were there or not. And so uh, not only that, but not only that, but they were not there the night Jesus was born. They didn't find him until about two years later, probably. So keep them in your nativity if you like. But just realize that having them in there wasn't really how it went down. Now you're saying, well, okay, fine, but isn't this whole thing sort of just like a made-up story anyway? Isn't it like a fable, as many have said, made up years later to support the claim that Jesus was God and king? No, not by a long shot. Let me quickly demonstrate to you what many historians believe, which is that there's no way that Matthew actually made this up. Because let's ask, who were these people? Well, first of all, they weren't Jews at all. They were pagan idol worshipers. And for a pagan to come into the house of a Jew at the time would paint that Jew or Jewish family in a lesser light. They would have been now unfit for God's presence and blessing. So Matthew would be taking an enormous risk with Jesus's reputation and claim to be God by including this. And not only that, these weren't just any pagans, they were astrologers, and all through the Bible, astrology, astrologers, were universally condemned. They're always condemned except in one place, and that's right here. See, Matthew brings pagan astrologers into the story in a gospel mostly aimed at Jewish readers. Why? Well, two reasons. First, it's because it's entirely historically plausible. Because we know on May 29th of that year, there was an overlap of Jupiter and Saturn in the sky. It's called a great conjunction. I learned this this week. This would have come to the attention of astrologers. 
Why? Well, a few years before this, in an unbelievable and historical coincidence, when Julius Caesar died, there was a huge supernova in the sky, which, as you can imagine, helped the astrology business for quite some time. Because it gave rise to the belief that when kings were born or died, there would be some celestial marker in the sky. So, when you combine Caesar's supernova, Jupiter and Saturn, plus the Jewish expectation of a Messiah, plus a Greek legend that a king would be born in Judea, which the Magi referenced, altogether you've got a recipe for a massive baby hunt from the educated stargazers of the day. And so off go these magi with gifts. But Matthew's not including it just because it happened, which it did. He's including it because he wants to show us a picture, an image, which is this. It's a picture of the wise and educated people of the day bowing before God's ultimate wisdom, Jesus Christ. See, the Magi, they were the cultural elite of the day. See, even to arrive in Jerusalem showed enormous awareness, education, familiarity with Roman culture, Greek culture, Jewish culture. They were received by Herod because they had wealth and a reputation. They got it going on intellectually, financially. They're powerful, and yet they bow before a baby in a poor man's house. In the Bible's version of some small town, West Texas, somewhere, all apologies to you if that's you. You say, well, you know, they were sort of, okay, they were astrologers, right? They sort of worshipped the stars. They couldn't have been that smart. That's why they're bowing before a baby. See, we know better about all that star stuff now, but that's not the point. The point is that these were the wise men of their day. They were the PhDs of the first century. Listen, they had what they had to go on, right? And you've got what you've got to go on. And anyway, no matter when you live, what anybody ever has to go on is always changing, right? It's always, here's the word, dated, Everybody's stuff, everybody's wisdom from their era, wise men ours, everybody's learning is always dated, right? Or as C.S. Lewis put it, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And let me, before I go on, let me just give you four quick examples of how knowledge and wisdom in one day become quickly and radically out of date in another, even in our lifetimes. And therefore... Why you should put your trust in something not modern, but eternal, just like the wise men. Four reasons. Number one, in anthropology, four areas. Anthropology, uh, for decades we were taught, maybe you were taught, there's no such thing as good or bad culture, right? Anthropology is taught this extreme relativism, don't pass judgment on any culture, and to pass judgment on a culture uh, or to get involved was the worst thing that you can do, and therefore Christian missionaries have been the worst kind of people, worst sinners in history, because they tampered with cultures. But now that perspective's flipped 180 degrees. Now anthropologists study culture to detect and correct inequalities and fix famine, tribal feuding, prevent tribes from executing each other. In other words, cultural tampering is now good. 
Good. Uh, and when I went to college, it was bad. Now it's good 20 years later. And by the way, if you've got an issue, if your objection to the Bible is, or Christianity is cultural tampering, you've got an issue with God here. Because this whole scene is about him sending his missionary son into the world to culturally tamper with a whole empire. That doesn't excuse colonialism, right? Or forcing natives to wear Western clothes. But the idea that tampering is always bad is thankfully on its way out. But the point is, that perspective's flip-flopped in your lifetime. Second area, gender studies. Four years ago, 40 years ago, excuse me, your gender, sexuality, were taught as being absolutely a choice. You could choose what you wanted to be, who you wanted to be with. Now it's 180 degrees of difference. Now we're taught, in no uncertain terms, these things are fixed and not up for grabs. Now we're taught, sexuality, who we want to be with, are hardwired. And generation has changed. Third, philosophy. Uh, For more than a century or so, a guy you may have heard of, Frederick Nietzsche. He's been hot, hot, hot. He's been the skeptic's skeptic because he basically said all the big stories about life. All what are called the meta-narratives are basically power grabs. They're just somebody trying to rule your life, tell you what to do, right, and exploit you. And he was right up to a point, but thankfully now, philosophers are beginning to question in droves the depth of Nietzsche's claim, because if it's true all the time, that all truth claims are just power grabs, what could be a bigger power grab than claiming everybody else's truth claims are just a big power grab, except for yours? See, Nietzsche can't be right. Otherwise, his own claim would collapse under its own weight, and of course it does. Fourth, religious studies. Uh, For decades on campuses, students have been taught, and now it's accepted uh, by fact by almost every online religious article you ever read, that Christianity is a Western white male construct, except for the fact that, I don't know, it isn't. (laughs) First of all, it began where? The Middle East right? And second, Christianity is exploding all over the world by the millions, faster than government senses can keep up with. China, Korea, Africa, Latin America. Uh, Dr. Philip Jenkins in his book about global Christianity says if you want to get a picture of what the average Christian in the world looks like, it would be a 20-something Brazilian female. It's the average Christian in the world. See, Everything That isn't eternal, is eternally out of date. 40 years ago, we believed fundamentally different things about anthropology, gender, philosophy, religious studies. Were those professors wrong? Well, now you would say, of course, yes, but we know better now. (laughs) But we don't, because how much of what we believe now will in 40 years be out of date? Is it possible that we know everything now? We've arrived at the one moment in history where all knowledge is available to us and perceived correctly. No, no, no. Listen, in 100 years, in 200 years, we're all, all of us are going to look like those magi. We're going to look like astrologers by comparison. But look at Christian history, right? Look at, go back, read all the big A's. Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Athanasius, then Luther, Wesley. There's some stuff on the side that's different, but at the core, they're always the same because they're eternal, right? 
and therefore eternally in season. How do we apply this before we move on? Here's how. Those of you who would consider yourself wise, here's how you apply this. You need to do what the Magi did. Because how, in the end, did they find Jesus? How did they find God? It wasn't because of Herod. It wasn't even a star. No, in the end, they had to go to God's word. That's what happened at the beginning of the chapter. In the end, these Harvard-educated PhDs, they go to the Jewish Torah. And when they do, they find Jesus. Let me ask you, do you think less of them for as kings bowing before a baby? No, I, I hope you don't. Matter of fact, we probably, we all do, we honor them, even incorrectly in our nativity scenes. Because, why? Because they perceived, the point, they perceived rightly that the wisdom of their day was insufficient to get them to God. Their education wasn't enough to take them all the way to Jesus. They went to God's word. And then they found the place where true, eternal wisdom was. Their learning could only take them so far. Your learning, my learning, it can only take us so far, even as much of it is, yes, redemptive and accurate and good, right? The point is, this picture of the Magi shows us that those who are truly wise will, in the end, not only bow before Jesus, but bring him the gifts of their heart. Bring him the gifts, wealth to Jesus. See, just by being born, Jesus breaks into the lives of the wise, And he wants to break into your life as well. Second, the king. Uh, Let's look at this kind of person here because uh, it's not just the lives of the wise that Jesus breaks into. Uh, He's interrupting here a a kind of a person that in his day would have thought to have been untouchable to the life of a king. So let's see how uh, this interruption shows up. Uh, Let's continue on here. It says, when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. So here's the question. Question for you. How do kings handle Jesus? Right. The answer is not very well. (laughs) Not very well. And yes, Herod was a tyrant. Uh, Herod was notoriously paranoid, if you know anything about his life. Uh, He was so worried that when he died, no one would grieve him because he was so wicked. He gave orders for his soldiers to execute the leaders of a city, Jericho, to ensure that there would be grief and wailing the day he died. Yeah. So yeah, he was a tyrant. He slaughtered babies to get to Jesus. But that doesn't mean he's altogether unlike you or me. Because he evokes, yes, Jesus evokes hostility from Herod. But the point of what Matthew is showing us is this. That Jesus will always come into conflict with those who see themselves as kings. Jesus will always come into conflict with those who see themselves as kings. Look, if you've read it, at what Romans chapter 1 says. If you haven't read it, I'll tell you. It says that the natural state, how your heart comes preformed, prepackaged, the natural state of the human heart is an openness toward God isn't even ambivalence no it says the natural state of the human heart hear this is hatred toward god enmity it says the bible's making the claim that you today in your chair my chair apart from god all of us have a little herod inside us a little voice that wants to be king and will kill throw out assassinate any information 
that begins to make its way in that says, you know what, you need another ruler. You say, well, God, that's kind of hard, Morgan, hatred. I mean, don't, right? Don't most people in our country believe in God? Don't most Americans believe in God today? Well, uh, an author recently, a guy named Michael Kinsley, in a, in a magazine called The New Republic, he wrote an article. He says, yeah, basically, he, he questioned the thought that America's becoming increasingly anti-God. He said, well, sure, there are pockets where Christianity is not wanted, but overall, he asked, is it easier to get up in public and say, I believe in God? Or is it easier to get up in public and say, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist? And he said, look, most people would say, you know, I could get up and say, I believe in God without it coming back on him. So look, most people aren't hostile towards faith or towards God, but he's wrong. He's wrong. And here's where it's going to get really challenging. Because the Bible doesn't say that people are hostile towards the idea of a God somewhere, or maybe heaven existing. The Bible says people are hostile towards the person of God himself. See, people, they're not against the idea of a God who just does whatever they want him to, right? The God of meet the parents who's a good and accommodating God, right? No, people are against the biblical God, the God who thunders from Mount Sinai, right? Who gives the Ten Commandments, not suggestions, and says, I will by no means clear the guilty. People hate it when Jesus came and said, if your love for me doesn't make your love for your wife, children, spouse, friends look like hate, you can't be my disciple. People hate it when Jesus says, if you don't give up Everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. We react against that. I know I do. Against the person of God who's come to be king. See, all Herod is, read the past. I mean, all Herod is, Herod is, is you and me on a big stage with money and guns and an army and power. That's it. He doesn't even pretend to be neutral. But we do. We do. It's crazy. We pretend to come neutrally to the subject of God. But the Bible says, Romans 1, that's a myth. Oh, it's a myth. No one's neutral. You actually come pre-biased against serving God. And thankfully, thankfully, some thinkers have actually admitted they have a bias. A guy by the name of Thomas Nagel is a former professor of philosophy at NYU, atheist guy. He said, listen, I'm an atheist, but he goes on to say this. He said, I want atheism to be true. I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I have a cosmic authority problem. And I don't think it's rare. I doubt whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as whether there is a God or not. What's he saying? He's saying it's not really about evidence. Right, evidence. He says, I just want to be king of my own life. So yes, yes, this is you. Come with your questions today. Come with your arguments, your, your challenges, issues with the Bible. That's great. Come with them. But please, have the courage to admit, like this man, that you come with something more fundamental than your questions. 
You have a reason for not even wanting God to exist. You're, you're pre-biased against the defendant before you ever go into the courtroom. See, But, and here's where it gets super tough. Hang with me. It's going to get bumpy for about two minutes. For a group of people in here, you're actually in a worse kind of place. And even here it is. You're the people who's maybe caught in the middle about who Jesus is. You say, well, you know, I kind of believe. I like to come to church sometimes. But I've got this thing with this girl. I've got this thing with this guy. It's super important to me. And so, you know, my sexual ethics sort of go out the window. What I know is right. It sort of vanishes. Then it emerges and it vanishes again. Or, or maybe you say, yeah, I come here. I know I should be a faithful, generous giver. But I've got a car payment, right? I've got a vacation. Uh, I've got a retirement to save for. I wish I could do better, but oh well. Listen, as a pastor here, and I, I hope you experience the love of Jesus, but listen, I would rather have you go home scared out of your mind about who Jesus is, really, really frightened of him, or absolutely hate his guts and hate anything to do with him rather than just be in the middle forever. Because at least, hear this, at least you'd be closer to seeing him for who he really is. I mean, Herod, he's scared out of his mind that there might be a greater king and ruler than him. And he was right. He should have been scared because that's who Jesus said he was. The Pharisees, the religious people of his day, they hated him because Jesus messed with their whole power structure deal. The Romans got tired of him disturbing their famous peace. Romans, Pharisees, Herod, they all understood his claims. Jesus was God and king or no one. Does that bother you? Does it frighten you? It should. Don't let the nice music and the smiles and the hugs and the free coffee distract you from what's central to our message, to our church here. There's a new king in town, a new sheriff, a new CEO. See, for years, I personally, you may know this, I resisted serving God because, uh, well, no matter, I resisted God. I knew the uh, Bible backwards, I knew it forwards, memory verses, commandments, all that stuff. Uh, But I lived the way I wanted to. I came to church because my parents made me. It was the right thing to do, I suppose. But there was no fire, no burning heart, no changed life. And I justify it by looking at the lives of my friends and saying, well, I do this, but, you know, at least I don't do that like them. I'm kind of better. Or I do that with those people, but at least I'm not like those people who really, really do the bad stuff. And I was miserable, full of my own bondages and addictions. The irony was, I was the one keeping me in the prison. The door was locked from the inside. But it was only when I surrendered everything to Jesus as king, that everything changed. I had to surrender all my relationships, all of my hurt, all of my pain, my career, my desires, and say, you're the king, you're Lord. You know better, I don't. And then though, what I found was what Tolkien said the true king would be, a healer, a healer. He wrote, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And by this shall the rightful king be known. All other kings come to exploit you, like Nietzsche said. 
This one doesn't. He comes to heal. You say, well, gosh, I love that. How can I get that? All right. By seeing a third kind of life Jesus has come to break into. And give me a chance to unpack what I mean here. Because he's actually come to shatter not just the grids of the wise and the king, but also the lives of Christians in here as well. Number three. Question. If you call yourself a Christian, what would you say the Bible is all about? Who would you say the Bible's all about? And your answer to that one question will drive 99% of your behavior, of your mental makeup. Because the Bible, Matthew shows you, is about something that maybe you and certainly his readers have never seen coming. In Matthew chapter 2, after the Magi leave Joseph in Mary's house, Joseph, we read, he's warned in a dream, right, to leave Bethlehem to save Jesus' life. And so in obedience to what's spoken to him, he packs his life up, his family up, and leaves literally overnight to go to Egypt to avoid bloodshed. And now Jesus has become a refugee from violence. His parents live in Egypt till Herod dies. Then they come back. They settle in a different place in Israel, even more remote than Bethlehem, called Nazareth. And then Matthew. Matthew looks at all of this, the whole episode, and he sums it up like this. This verse, Matthew 2.15, it says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. All right. Now, because most of you aren't familiar uh, with that little quote there, we sort of move past it and say, yeah, 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 yeah. Matthew's making some point. Great. But remember, who's Matthew writing to, right? It's a Jewish audience who would have known this reference automatically. It was Hosea 11.1. And so you today, uh, maybe this week as you've read Matthew, you being the super studious and maybe slightly uptight Christian that you are, you've wanted to find out where Hosea is. And so you've gone to the table of contents <laughs> to find out where Hosea is. And then you read Hosea 11.1, and you figure, man, it's going to have some connection with the Messiah. And then you read it, and you think, there's no connection to this Matthew stuff. There's no connection to Jesus. So what was Hosea talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, when the phrase, my son, was used, it was a common nickname that God gave to Israel, his nation child. And Hosea is summing up what God did to give birth to his nation child, his son. He plucked him out of danger in Egypt, right? Called him out into the desert to meet him at Mount Sinai. Gave the Ten Commandments and said, obey me and I'll bless you. That's what Hosea is about. Hosea summed all that stuff up. He said, out of Egypt, God called his son, Hosea 11 all about the Exodus story. But Matthew looks at that same verse, those same six words in English, and sees it totally differently. He looks at the Exodus story. He looks at the Hosea passage. Then he looks at Jesus' life and says all that stuff in the Old Testament, all the stories, all the prophets, Exodus, Egypt, Hosea. It's all really about Jesus. And he doesn't just do it here. He does it three times in this chapter, over and over again, as do the New Testament writers. I mean, you'll go to look up like a quote or a reference. On the surface, it seems like it's light years disconnected from what you read, unless you'll begin to read it. Like Matthew, Luke, John, Peter, Paul read the Old Testament. As being not about you, not even about Israel, but all about Jesus. 
You say, well, what's the difference? Here's the difference. If the Bible is all just about you, right? If it's only a set of rules to live up to, to earn God's grace and favor. If it's only about heroes you're supposed to copy, you'll live a kind of, hear this, spiritually neurotic life. You'll be up one day, down the next, sometimes courageous, but mostly fearful, even prideful. Because you don't have in you, underneath it all, what Matthew's trying to show you right here, that the Bible is not primarily about you and your ability to obey God, follow God. And here's how you can know this. Because this just isn't any passage in Hosea. It's actually one where God is rebuking the nation of Israel for not following him. He's saying, I begged you to obey me. I called you. I called you out of Egypt. I gave birth to all y'all. I gave you my perfect law. I said, obey me and I'll bless you. But you have it and you've broken my heart. You say, well, gosh, that was just Israel. Sure, they didn't keep me you know, the law, but what if they had, right? I mean, what if they had? The point is, they couldn't. <laughs> they didn't. Israel, again, is just you and me up on a big stage. I mean, pull back and look. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. Genesis 3, God said to Adam and Eve, obey me and I'll bless you. And they couldn't. Then God sent a flood, started over with Noah, said to Noah, obey me and I'll bless you. But he didn't. Then he said to Israel, I'm going to save you. Obey me and I'll bless you. But they don't. Adam, Noah, Israel, you, me, none of us have perfectly obeyed God. So what's Matthew trying to show us about Jesus as a baby then? He's showing you, even in his infancy, he is being what we could never be. God's one faithful, obedient, perfectly loving child that he can bless. Except there's a massive twist. Because when you get to the end of Jesus' life, there's no angelic fanfare. No balloon drop, no embrace from his father, not even a pat on the back. No, he was coronated, but with thorns. He was talked about, but only to be mocked. He did get a royal robe, but it was only a prop people could strip off him to expose his nakedness and shame him. What was he doing? Oh, even then, being the Adam, being the Noah, being the Israel, being the you, being the me. We could never be that now we could get God's celebration and affection. I mean, what do you think that Jesus actually deserved for his sinless life, right? For his matchless wisdom, for his courage, for his suffering. I mean, what do you think someone deserves for doing and going through all that? Do they deserve honor? Glory? Yeah. Reward? Eternal love? Yeah. That's right. Do you realize that's what you can have right now, though you've done nothing to deserve it? And that's the gospel. That the most high became the most low, so that the most low could be loved by the most high. It's not fair. It's not right. But that's what grace is. That's what grace is. And God's grace, and therefore his transforming power and love are available for all those who say, my life isn't about me, my faith isn't about me, my Christianity's not about me, the Bible's not about me. It's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. How can you apply all this? Three ways, briefly, I'll pray for you. First, for those of you today who would consider yourselves wise or even unwise, ordinary, as we've heard, You need to go to God's word and place its learning 
above your own. See, the Bible isn't modern, and aren't you glad? It's not modern, it's eternal, and all that's not eternal is eternally out of date. Go to God's Word, study it, put it above your mind learning, and watch it change your life. Second, for those of you who would say, I'm just kind of in the middle today, somewhere about Jesus, I would appeal to you and say, you're not really grasping who Jesus is. I know I didn't. I wasn't for many years. But Herod grasped it, right? The Magi did. One cursed Jesus. The others bowed. But no one was neutral. If you're not cursing or bowing, you still don't get it. And third, for those of you who are struggling today with some pain in your life, some hurt in your relationship with God somehow, let me just tell you, Matthew 2.15, it ought to be the most, one of the most comforting verses you've ever read if you've never seen it that way. It's showing you Jesus was the true child, the true son called out of Egypt. In other words, he was the one who perfectly loved God in your place. So now God's grace and love and healing hands can touch your life. Hear me. Your obedience doesn't save you. Your purity doesn't save you. Otherwise, your purity would be your savior, right? Your good morals, your quiet times with God, those aren't your savior. Listen, I'm glad for those. You should do all of that. It's great. Better than not. It doesn't save you. Otherwise, purity would be your, obedience would be your savior. No, Jesus saves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. Listen, let's go to him. Allow Matthew 2.15. Out of Egypt, I call my true son. Let's allow that to touch our hearts right now as we close.